First of all, a warning. In this episode, we'll be discussing the treatment of enslaved people. That will include violence, family separation, sexual assault, child abuse, and domestic violence. Teachers of ethics love to pose ethical quandaries. Here's a classic. Is it morally permissible for an impoverished person to steal someone else's property in order to feed or clothe his or her family? Here's another, made famous by philosopher Immanuel Kant. Would it be ethical to lie in order to save the life of someone? And here's another common thought experiment that may come up in an ethics class, a quandary that I think we're all a little tired of. If you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would that be ethical to do so? These are all questions of moral absolutes. Moral absolutes versus consequentialism, or outcomes. In other words, is it ethical to violate a moral prohibition against murder, or lying, or stealing, if it means saving people's lives? They're questions about the ethical way to respond to specific cases. But these thought experiments are so distant from people's lives, and they seem pretty unrealistic. And when it comes to that last one, is it ethical to go back in time to kill Hitler? Why is it always Hitler? And I don't mean, why not Pol Pot or Stalin? I mean, why don't we ask this hypothetical about perpetrators of human rights atrocities that are a lot closer to home? So I will. Would it be ethical to go back in time to kill former Rhode Island Senator James DeWolf, a man who imported up to 11,000 slaves to American shores. Or Joshua John Ward, who enslaved over 1,000 people in his lifetime. Or Rhode Island representative and merchant John Brown, who made a fortune trading, among other things, enslaved people. Or Isaac Franklin and John Armfield, the largest domestic slave traders in American history. These men were instrumental in creating and maintaining a system that killed, maimed, and dehumanized millions of people. They contributed to what the 1951 Civil Rights Congress argued before the United Nations was genocide. So if we could go back in time and prevent genocide, ought we to do that? Why am I focusing on this? If I'm talking about ethics, why aren't I focusing on moral quandaries and big questions like when is it ethical to euthanize? What do we owe our neighbors? When must we tell the truth? It's because I see ethics as more than just working through quandaries and puzzles. The most important ethics questions involve how we respond to evil, how we respond to real human suffering. It's not about manners or social norms. It's about standing up to injustice or standing in solidarity with others. It's about resisting evil, even in small ways. Before that, it's about recognizing when evil is happening and not accepting the excuse that it is somehow a necessary evil or that it is suffering caused by one's own shortcomings. And if this is what ethics really is, then it's also about remaining happy and hopeful even in the face of hopelessness. It's about observing your duty to show joy even when surrounded by pain. The ethical life is about a new way of seeing the world, turning one's life around. 
We can't learn this through scientific studies or lists of lessons. We learn this by looking at lives of people who led the ethical life. I'm Eric Bowman, and this is The Virtue Field. If ethics is about confronting evil, then we first must notice evil when it happens. I think this is why we are so fixated on questions about Hitler. He clearly carried out acts of evil and forced suffering on millions of people. But there are other examples that aren't as comfortable to look at. If the 1951 Civil Rights Congress, attended by, among others, the great W.E.B. Du Bois, considered American slavery a genocide, then we should take a closer look at the often overlooked atrocities of American slavery. I'm always afraid to try to explain the horrors of American slavery because I always feel like I'll come up short, or it'll sound like I'm somehow downplaying it. I will do my best, but it's safe to say that I won't do it justice. Dehumanization of enslaved people started with the international slave trade, which took place by way of the infamous Middle Passage. Olauda Equiano was from the Igbo people of what is now Nigeria. He was captured as a youth in the middle of the 1700s, separated from his family, and brought to Barbados and then to Virginia. He gives an account of his journey on the Middle Passage. I was soon put down under the decks. And there I received such a salutation in my nostrils as I had never experienced in my life, so that, with the loathsomeness of the stench and crying together, I became so sick and low that I was not able to eat, nor had I the least desire to taste anything. I now wished for the last friend, death, to relieve me. But soon, to my grief, two of the white men offered me eatables. And on my refusing to eat, one of them held me fast by the hands and laid me across the windlass and tied my feet while the other flogged me severely. If I could have gotten over the nettings, I would have jumped over the side. But I could not. And besides, the crew used to watch us very closely who were not chained down to the decks, lest we should jump into the water. And I have seen some of these poor African prisoners most severely cut for attempting to do so, and hourly whipped for not eating. This indeed was often the case with myself. This describes the initial journey of the system of chattel slavery. It got worse. But I'm not sure the atrocities have been fully realized in our recollections of history. As far back as the 19th century, Southern defenders of slavery, such as former Vice President John C. Calhoun, have been arguing that slavery is a common practice in world history. They overlook the unique horrors of American slavery, which was lifelong, inherited, 
race-based, and uniquely brutal. It may be easy for some to overlook the treatment of enslaved people because enslavers often spoke about how well they treated them. They claimed that their slaves were better off under their supervision. They claimed they were helping an otherwise savage people become more civilized. They argued that they treated their slaves much better than a northern industrialist treated his factory workers. And they believed that the success of their plantations directly benefited the enslaved. These arguments sought to counterbalance the moral arguments of abolitionists. Such arguments also helped enslavers maintain power over the enslaved and keep them in a sort of psychological subservience. Whippings and beatings were not just carried out to keep enslaved people in line or to keep them working hard. It was often done for no good reason. The unpredictability made it that much more cruel. Frederick Douglass describes this in his autobiography. It would astonish one, unaccustomed to a slaveholding life, to see with what wonderful ease a slaveholder can find things of which to make occasion to whip a slave. A mere look, a word, a motion, a mistake, an accident, or want of power are all matters for which a slave may be whipped at any time. Does a slave look dissatisfied? It is said he has the devil in him, and it must be whipped out. Does he speak loudly when spoken to by his master? Then he's getting high-minded and should be taken down a buttonhole lower. Does he forget to pull off his hat at the approach of a white person? Then he is wanting in reverence and should be whipped for it. Does he ever venture to vindicate his conduct when censured for it? Then he's guilty of impudence, one of the greatest crimes of which a slave can be guilty. Does he ever venture to suggest a different mode of doing things from that pointed out by his master? He is indeed presumptuous and getting above himself, and nothing less than a flogging will do for him. Does he, while plowing, break a plow? Or while hoeing, break a hoe? It is owing to his carelessness, and for it, a slave must always be whipped. Enslaved families lived in dirt-floored shacks, which provided poor shelter from the elements. In these homes, enslaved people had no source of basic health care, warmth, clothing, or food. The life of the enslaved was haunted by typhus, dysentery, cholera, smallpox. There are many stories of enslaved people forced to work despite suffering from tuberculosis. The food source was purposefully unpredictable. There are numerous accounts of enslaved people being made to eat from the pig trough or stealing food that was intended for livestock. Punishments were violent and humiliating. In one instance, a husband and wife were yoked together like oxen. This treatment is grotesquely creative and artistic. Because in order to treat someone so inhumanely, you must first acknowledge their humanity. You see that they have human needs and desires, and then you tease them, you take them away, 
or you give them the opposite twofold. One of the most appalling examples of this treatment is seen in the seemingly constant rape of enslaved women. Fancy maids, or fancy ladies, was a title given to enslaved women, which tells us exactly how they were seen. They were described as young and pretty and perfect for sexual exploitation. And the enslavers of these women had the full intention of repeatedly assaulting them. Family separation was among the worst threats to enslaved families. Again, one must acknowledge that they are humans who love, who value the family bond, in order to appreciate that it is such a forceful threat to separate them. Despite all efforts to break their spirit and dehumanize, enslaved people constantly fought back, not just to free themselves, but to assert their humanity. There were many slave rebellions. In 1712, there was the New York Slave Revolt. Here, enslaved people rose up against colonists, asserting their freedom. They set fire to a building on Broadway and attacked white New York colonists as they tried to extinguish the fire. Nine white colonists were killed in the violence and others were wounded. Rather than await trial and face imprisonment or worse, six enslaved people died by suicide. Somewhere between 25 to 40 enslaved people were brought to trial. Some were acquitted, and a few others were pardoned. The rest, more than 20 people, were brutally executed. There are conflicting reports. As many as 20 were burned alive. One was crushed by the breaking wheel. One was apparently chained and allowed to starve to death. A pregnant woman was kept alive until she gave birth, and then was executed. Some reports say that a few others were hanged. And in response to that slave rebellion in New York, strict codes were enacted, which included, but were not limited to, harsher punishments that were doled out as the slaveholders saw fit. New laws prohibited contact among the enslaved, and they prohibited the enslaved from owning firearms. We see this trend again and again in response to any enslaved people asserting their freedom. In 1730, there was the Chesapeake Rebellion, perhaps the largest in colonial America. Hundreds of enslaved people heard a rumor that the royal government would be granting them freedom. When that freedom didn't come true, approximately 200 enslaved people gathered in an organized meeting to demand that the royal government follow through with their promise. They were scattered, and they fled through the Great Dismal Swamp. They were hunted down with the help of local Native American tribes. In response... Enslaved people were under much stricter surveillance and prohibited from gathering in large numbers. The Stono Rebellion occurred in South Carolina in 1739. It rose up in response to harsh treatment by South Carolina planters. There was an increased demand for slave labor that led to an increased population of enslaved Congolese people. As the number of enslaved people grew, planters in South Carolina passed harsh rules to keep them under control. Led by an enslaved man named Jemmy, a group of over 75 enslaved people began a march towards Spanish Florida, where they would seek refuge and freedom. On the way, the enslaved marchers burned a handful of plantations and killed over 25 white people. Within a day, a militia was formed to track them down. The rebels were confronted, and nearly 50 of them were killed. Their heads were cut off and stuck on pikes along the roadside 
to serve as a warning to other enslaved people. Local Native American tribes and even other enslaved people were hired to help hunt down other rebels. After Stono, South Carolina enacted stricter laws against enslaved people. The legislature passed the Negro Act of 1740, which required a ratio of one white person to ten black people on any plantation. It prohibited enslaved people from growing their own food, assembling in groups, earning money, or learning to read. Gabriel Prosser planned a rebellion in 1800. Prosser could read and write and was a skilled worker, a blacksmith, giving him relative power among enslaved people. He planned a revolt in the Virginia capital of Richmond, but the plans were spilled to the authorities. Governor and future president, James Monroe, sent in the militia. Twenty-three enslaved conspirators were hanged. In 1811, there was the German Coast Uprising, perhaps the biggest uprising of enslaved people. Rebels marched roughly 20 miles towards New Orleans. The militia was sent and shot about 45 of the protesters. The militia decapitated over 40 conspirators. Others were executed by firing squad or hanged. And once again, severed heads were placed on stakes alongside the road as a warning to other enslaved people who got any ideas of rebellion. And of course, there's Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831 in eastern Virginia. Turner, believing he was called by God to end slavery, led his followers on a rampage through the countryside, murdering enslavers and their families. Turner was eventually captured and hanged, but the impact of his rebellion is immeasurable. He inspired other abolitionists. He terrorized enslavers. And Southern politicians grew fearful that the government might try to quell other rebellions by taking steps to abolish slavery. The South dug in on the slavery question. It would take a war to end it. Enslaved people also fought back in countless mundane, everyday ways. Simply by raising their family, loving their parents, developing songs, art, religious views, they were continually asserting their humanity in the face of evil. Historian Kenneth Stamp, in his important book, The Peculiar Institution, describes the many ways that enslaved people would assert their power. Work slowdowns, faking injury or illness, stealing, destroying property or tools or machinery. These were small acts of defiance that made the hour their own. Each of these acts, whether large or small, can be seen as enslaved people asserting their humanity in a land and within a system that did all it could to try to remind them of their subservience and their lack of true personhood. So Immanuel Kant asks us, is it morally permissible to lie in order to save a life? His answer is no. Lying is a moral absolute. But in the system that I have described here, American chattel slavery, how can these moral absolutes have any place? Whose absolutes? Do moral absolutes apply in a system where people are dehumanized? Where violence and assault is a rule? Where the truth never had any meaning for the slave? Remember the moral quandaries that I started with? How do we answer the question about morality of stealing something if that which we are stealing is our own bodies, as an enslaved person stealing themselves by way of escape? 
Is it ethical to steal oneself from one's owner? And how do we answer the ethical quandary about lying to save a life when one lives within an entire system that is based on the lie of racism? Would it be ethical to lie and betray one's enslaver in order to liberate oneself? And when Immanuel Kant argues for moral absolutes, we must ask whose absolutes? The absolutes of a professor writing a philosophy book? The absolutes of an enslaver? Or the virtues of those who live under oppression and daily must assert their humanity, those who can't afford for ethics to be theoretical, but must work them out, quite literally, in the field. In the end, why do I talk about the evils of slavery? Because we need to rescue ethics conversations from moral quandaries and hypothetical puzzles. I noticed a few years back that many of the ethics conversations I had with young students seemed to devolve into discussion about acts of kindness, not ethics. Should we hold the door for someone? Should we lie and tell them that their new dress looks good on them? This is not ethics. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, World War II-era pastor, theologian, and ethicist, reminded us that ethics is about confronting evil. Truth-telling, charity, kindness are all important. But if one does all of those things, yet fails to confront evil, one is failing to act in a truly ethical way. I hope this helps us ground our conversation. And I also wanted to set the stage for the protagonist of this podcast. It is into this context of American slavery, on the eastern shore of Maryland, in around 1822, that a baby girl was born to Harriet and Ben Ross. They didn't place her in a basket in the bulrushes, but she would become Moses for her people. Virtue Field is brought to you by the Revolution Ethics Project. It's written and hosted by me, Eric Bowman, and produced and scored by Echo Finch.